Someone has compared men and women like this. Let me say at the beginning of this, it is not I who has compared men and women like this, but someone has said this. Regarding nicknames, uh, if Emma, Suzanne, Deborah, and Michelle go out for lunch, they will call each other Emma, Suzanne, Deborah, and Michelle. But if Mike, Phil, Rob, and Jack go out to lunch, they will affectionately refer to each other as Fat Boy, Godzilla, Peanut Head, and Useless. <laughs> Regarding eating out, when the bill arrives, Mike, Phil, Rob, and Jack will each throw in 20 bucks, even though it's only 20 bucks for everybody. None of them will have anything smaller, and none of them will actually admit that they want any changebacks. Yet when girls go out and they get their bill, out come the pocket calculators <laughs> regarding bathrooms. A man has six items in his bathroom. A toothbrush, shaving cream, razor, a bar of soap, and a towel from the Holiday Inn. <laughs> the average number of items in the typical woman's bathroom is 437. <laughs> and a man would not be able to identify most of them. Regarding arguments, a woman has the last word in any argument. Anything a man says after that is the beginning of a new argument. <laughs> Uh, regarding cats, women love cats. Men say they love cats, but when women aren't around, they kick them. <laughs> regarding the future, a woman worries about the future until she gets a husband. A man never worries about the future until he gets a wife. <laughs> regarding success, a successful man is one who makes more money than his wife can spend. A successful woman is one who can find such a man. <laughs> Regarding marriage, a woman marries a man expecting that he will change, but he doesn't. A man marries a woman expecting that she won't change, and she does. <laughs> I didn't write these, okay? Regarding dressing up, a woman will dress up to go shopping, to water the plants... She'll dress up to empty the garbage or answer the phone. She'll dress up to read a book or get the mail. A man will dress up for weddings and funerals. <laughs> Regarding the natural, it says, Men wake up as good-looking as they went to bed. Women somehow deteriorate during the night. <laughs> I didn't write these, okay? <clears throat> Finally, regarding kids, regarding offspring, a woman knows all about her children. She knows about the dentist appointments and the romances, best friends and favorite foods, and the secret fears and hopes and dreams of all the children. A man is vaguely aware of some short people living in the house. <laughs> oh, it's fun. Well, in the middle of all of these differences, some truer than others and some just fine. In the middle of all these differences, we are called to find someone of the opposite sex, actually spend time with them, end up marrying them, and spend the rest of our lives with them. And there's no dispute that men and women are different. They are very different. If you don't know how different you are than the opposite sex, get married and you'll know really quickly. Yet when it comes to relationships, we're all called to one purpose. 
And it's not necessarily understanding all the differences. The one purpose we're called to is approaching all relationships with the underlying virtue of wisdom. The only source of true wisdom that we can find on the planet is not the psychologists, it's not the, uh, the talk shows or Dr. Laura. You can't find wisdom on the airwaves just floating around unless it's somehow attached to the ultimate source of wisdom, the Word of God. The Word of God is the only source and authority of wisdom that has effect over the lives and hearts and souls of people in this world. But when we turn to the Word of God, interestingly enough, to find how do you come to under... uh, When we turn to the Word of God, let's say it this way, to find out how to find a spouse, we're disappointed. There is no chapter, there is no verse, there is no book dedicated in the Scriptures on how to find a spouse. And as we've noted already, there's lots of descriptions. There are many ways to the, in the Bible that people came to find their spouses, but none of those descriptions are prescriptions. In other words, just to say that this is how someone else did it in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that that's how we have to do it today. My favorite, as we've said uh, three or four times, is Ruth. Ruth got her husband by going in while Boaz was asleep, lying down by his feet. When he woke up because someone was lying down by his feet, she sat up and proposed. Just because the Bible describes something like that doesn't mean it prescribes it for us. So what do we do? If the Bible has so much to say about marriage and so little to say about exactly how you come to that covenant of marriage, so little to say about how you come to find the right kind of person... What do we do? Do we just throw up our hands and say, well, she's pretty? Do we just throw up our hands and say, well, he's got a lot of money? What do we do? Well, before we even enter into that kind of dialogue and that kind of discussion, we have to understand, and I'm going to, this sounds a little uh, uh, trickery on words, but it's true. We have to understand the principle of principalizing. The principle of principalizing. What do you mean by that? You know, the, there are a lot of things that the Bible doesn't directly address, but there are principles in the Word of God that when retrieved from the Scriptures, apply to those issues. And finding a spouse is just such an issue. There are many principles all over the pages of the Word of God that can give us great wisdom, great insight into how we can pick a spouse, how and why we should date, how and why we should spend time with the opposite sex. If you have just joined us, we find ourselves in the middle, or toward the end, actually, of a series looking at romances and relationships. And what we've done is to glean out of the Scriptures ten principles, all starting with C, which will provide a road map that we can follow to find our spouse or to be the right kind of spouse. It's a road map to relationships. By principalizing the text, we can find a clear road map to relationships. Just by way of review, last week we covered two of these principles that are providing a roadmap for us. The first is the contentment principle. Remember that? And by that we mean you have to find your happiness in God alone. The contentment principle means you have to find your happiness in God alone. If you're not happy with God alone, you'll never be happy with someone else. Finding someone else doesn't automatically ensure happiness. And that can't be overstated or or emphasized enough. Many people think, well, if I can just find Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright, if we could just get together, if I would just have something to do on Friday nights, then I'd be happy. Shakespeare said, 
The owner of a lonely heart is far better than the owner of a broken one. If you think a relationship can get you happy, then you're only looking out for what you can get out of the relationship instead of what you can give. Marriage is about what you can give, students. It's about how you can glorify God by loving another person biblically. That's why marriages fail, because so many people are self-centered. At the heart of all relational problems is the worship of self. Every issue that has to be resolved in a relationship ultimately resolves back to your own selfish issues about yourself. You know, you never hear of anybody getting a divorce because they were not giving or loving enough. But you hear lots of people trying to bail out of relationships because they weren't getting what they wanted. So let me ask you, what do you want? What do you want to get out of a relationship? What are you searching for? If you're looking at relationships from the reference point of this is something I can get out of a relationship, I promise you this, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Every relationship you enter into of any intimacy level in your whole life, including that of marriage, will be a colossal disappointment to you. Why? The closer you get to people, the closer you see their sin. Now, that doesn't uh, overbalance the fact that you get to see virtue in a godly relationship. You get to work with each other in sanctification. It's a wonderful thing. However, if you're looking to that relationship so that you can find happiness and fulfillment, you're going to be disappointed. There's only one relationship on the planet that you can draw near to that the closer you get to that person, the more wonderful they get. And that's the Lord Jesus. And yet, in close, drawing closer to Him, that relationship is what gives us the spiritual lenses, as it were, to look back into our relationships and find the, the glory and the honor and the blessing and the privilege and the happiness that God provides in them. If you're not happy with God, there's no guarantee you'll be happy with someone else. And by the way, why would you want to date, court, marry, get together with someone who wasn't happy with God? Make sure as you're looking after you've been, after you're being, when you're looking for people that they're content in a relationship. You heard it said a lot, you know, they're not so interested in him or her as much as they're interested in being in a relationship, right? Well, be careful of that. Well, there's a second principle that we outlined last week. Not only the contentment principle, finding your happiness in God alone, but secondly, the conversion principle. The conversion principle is this. Pursue only a Christian. Pursue only a Christian. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and following says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? That's another word for Satan. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? That's the essence of it. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? You know, there's a text we didn't look at last week I want you to turn to briefly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, while you're turning, there's a very interesting chapter. It deals with marital and relationships. It deals with the, uh, the celibacy of singles. It deals with uh, uh, what happens if there's a, uh, a divorce, both biblically and unbiblically. What happens if there's a, a spouse that dies? What should you do relationally? At the end of all this instruction, he sums it up with something very interesting. Look down at verse 39, toward the end. A wife is bound 
as long as her husband lives. Stop right there. If you go back to the text, that means if he's an unbeliever and he's willing to live with you, then you need to live with him in an understanding way. You need to do 1 Peter 3 so that you can uh, be a light of the gospel in front of him. As long as he wants to stay under the sanctifying relationship bond that you have with him, which is always, what that means is the gospel is always before his eyes, both in word and in deed, then stay in that situation. But, if her husband is dead, now you've got a clean slate. What do you do then? Listen to this. She's free to be married to whom she wishes. What though? Only in the Lord. Students, let me tell you that as a Christian, you're only allowed to pursue a believer in a romantic relationship that might eventually lead into marriage. If you can date an unbeliever without violating your conscience, you need to reset your conscience before the Lord. Now let me say a little footnote here. Just because you know someone, just because maybe even your parents began as an unequally yoked relationship, one was a believer, one was not, one led the other to the Lord, they got married, wonderful kids, praise the Lord, that's great. That's Romans 8:28. God can work anything good out of anything He wants, right? And He will to those who love Him. Just because, though, you've seen that happen, the missionary dating, as we called it last week, in the past, is no prescription for you to do that in the present. Don't you dare think, because that worked in someone else's experience, that gives me the right and the prerogative to pursue it in my own life. The Word of God is very clear. Rick, are you saying my parents were wrong? No. God might be, but I didn't. Rick, are you saying a believer can't in, uh, enter into a dating relationship with an unbeliever? No. God is. God says that. It couldn't be more clear than right there in the text. Back up from that. Usually, there are rare exceptions, but usually the people we date are people we get to know better and better. And I would encourage you to be very careful how close you get to an unbeliever of the opposite sex. We said last week, you know, you're working at one of the restaurants and it closes and you're having fun. All, everyone's working together, closing, and begin to develop a relationship with someone. And you come in at work a little early to see them and you stay a little later to spend time with them. And it goes on and on. They begin to talk. And before long, you're in head over heels emotionally where your spirituality should have stopped you long before then. Just be careful. If you want to know more about that, you can get the tape from last week where we explained it a whole lot further. Well, that's the first two principles to give us a roadmap to righteous relationship. There's a third principle we'll look at. We'll look at three more today. And that's this, the character principle. The character principle. What do you mean by that, Rick? Realize and recognize the issues of the heart. Realize and recognize. This goes back to the whole first six or eight weeks that we began before, uh, that we taught on before we uh, started this little series on, on uh, um, getting together on relationships. And that's the character of who you are, the character of the person you're looking at, the person you're looking to. And there's two R's in there, realizing and recognizing. The realization means you need to realize godly character in your own life. It needs to be a reality in your life. Secondly, you need to recognize that same kind of godly character in another's life, a young woman or a young man's life. It's the pattern and practice of God to judge a man or a woman according to their true character by looking inside at what's in the heart. In the description of David, it says God looks at the outside, or man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. 
Externals can tell us very little, actually, about what a person is really like, but externals can tell us something of what a person's like. Someone who's a flirt tells you something about their heart. That's external. Someone who's easy tells you something about their heart and their physical standards before the Lord. Someone who's immodest, that tells you something about their heart before the Lord. Someone who's aloof and doesn't enter into conversations biblically or scripturally or seem to be interested when you want to talk about those things, that looks external, but it's all revelatory of what's in the heart. All that I think the scriptures are calling us to do here is not ignore the externals, but to look past the externals to see what's motivating them. Let's review. What can you do to um, implement this? First of all, you have to realize biblical character in your own life. You've got to realize it. It has to become a part of who you are. For women, our study of Titus 2 outlines some goals for uh, such a character. Let me remind you of what those were. She needs to have a depth of discipleship. She needs to have an attachment to older women who are godly and in the faith, who've lived life, who have the skills commensurate to a godly woman like in Proverbs 31. You need to have a love of liking. All again from Titus 2. Remember that? It says women... Love your husbands. And the word there is phileo, which means to like them. To understand how to relate to them. A depth of discipleship, a love of liking. She's to have, thirdly, a care for her children. A liking for children. She's to have an affinity and an affection for children. Women, let me say this and let me qualify it. If you're not willing to have children, don't get married. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily ready to. doesn't mean necessarily that you have to. But if in your heart there's no way I want children, then don't get married. That's one of the purposes that God established the covenant of marriage. We also saw that a woman in her character has to have a cultivation of control. She's to be sensible. She's to think clearly and think biblically. We also saw she's to have a passion for purity. Her heart is to be that which protects her purity as one of her, her golden treasures, one of the prizes of her life, both in mind and in deed, both in modesty and in relationships. Also, a heart for home. A woman who loves the Lord should have a heart for home. We saw in the Scriptures it says women are to be workers at home. That doesn't mean a woman cannot work outside the home, whether there's children there or not. What it does mean is a woman has to fulfill the God-given design for her in the home, and if there's extra time after that, she can do whatever she wishes under the morality of the Lord. Then we saw she used to have a kaleidoscope of kindness. That means she used to be kind in all sorts of ways to all sorts of people, to the lovely and the unlovely, to the respected and the unrespected. And lastly, we saw in her character, she used to have a softness to submission. It says to be subject to her own husband. And that subjection that we'll come back to in a minute is very clearly that she's following a man in a marriage. We'll say more about that in a few minutes. For the men, in terms of a, of a character that you should realize in your own life, again, Titus 2 tells us a depth of discipleship. An attachment and a relationship with older men who can pour into you the godliness they've gleaned from the scriptures and life experiences as they've gotten older. Secondly, we saw a cultivation of control. They're to be sensible. A man should think self-controlled in his thinking. He shouldn't be ruled by his passions, but by his rational thoughts. Thirdly, we saw he's to have a righteousness, a reputation rather of righteousness. 
He's an example of good deeds. People look at him and say, there's someone who loves Christ. His example is far and wide as someone who has his act together before the Lord. A clarity of convictions. He's to know theology. He's to understand what he believes and why. And those areas which he's lacking and isn't strong, he's always studying and reading and listening to tapes and reading books to try to perfect himself more in the understanding of theology and the ways of God. Next, we saw that there's to be an appropriateness of attitude. He's to be dignified. He knows how to act in any given situation. And lastly, the text in Titus 2 tells us there's a soundness of speech. A godly man is a man who controls his tongue. From the abundance of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. Well, it's far more important, students, to be that kind of person than to find the right person. If you focus on being, God will bring you the right kind of person. You need to look harder at the mirror, in other words, than you are at looking around. However, not only should you realize that, but secondly, you should recognize biblical character in your relationships. Recognize it. As you spend time with those young women, men, and those young men, women, look for these things. Have your antenna be tuned in to their heart for the Lord. Listen to what they say, how they say what they say. Talk about the Lord. See how they respond to that. When you do begin looking for a relationship, you better be looking for the right kind of person. This is why it's so critical to know and to study the standards for your own gender as well as those standards for the other. If you're a man, you should know your own convictions. You should know what God expects in your character as well as what He expects for a woman. Because if you know that, you'll look for the right things. Vice versa with women. You should know your own genders, character, qualifications before the Lord, as well as know what God expects for young men so that you can measure them against the Scriptures so you don't get, don't get trapped in a relationship that's going against the grain of Scripture. Well, can I add a third little point of uh, practicality on that? Don't be charmed by externals. Don't be charmed by externals. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Now that's in reference to a godly woman, but the principle goes both ways. A man is supposed to be an example of good deeds. In other words, he's known for who he is more than what he looks like. She's known for who she is more than what she looks like. Why? Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. I don't know if you've noticed... But people get older. Bodies change. Faces wrinkle. And if you're charmed by the externals, that's why many men get in their 40s and 50s and look at their precious wife, the the gift of God's choice for them, and say, you don't look like that 22-year-old. They bail out and go for the younger. But if you're attracted to the inner person, that inner quality of character in a man or in a woman, then you have the precious gift that my wife and I have, We can't wait to grow old together. She was smiling at me the other day. She says, you know, you're starting to get a lot more wrinkles around your your eyes. And you know what I said? If I'm going to get wrinkled, I'm glad it's you getting to see me get wrinkled. I almost said getting wrinkled with me. You watching me get wrinkled. Don't let your heart be set on what you see before it's set on what you know. Now, footnote. Having said that, let me say that there ought to be some chemistry. All right? My wife is a fox. 
I, she is the most beautiful woman I have ever laid eyes on. And she's gotten prettier since we've been living in marriage. She's almost nine months pregnant. I'm telling you, it, she's a beaut. I love her. She's wonderful. I absolutely adore her. It doesn't mean, well, I need to find someone I'm not attracted to who's very ugly and then see if they're a godly person and then God will work it out. Hey, just because there's a nice present doesn't mean that the, that the wrapping paper can't look really nice, okay? You don't have to throw entirely looking at the outsides away. The first thing that attracted me to Kim was, Wow! She's hot! She's pretty! Which caused me to get to know her, and her character was even more godly than that. If I don't quit right now, I'll just finish the rest of the time talking about my wife. Don't be charmed by externals. A little footnote to you guys as well. We're especially vulnerable to that. Vulnerable to that. Girls tend to look at the heart more discerningly than guys do. Guys say, well, she's pretty. Maybe she'll go out with me. Well, now there's a little more than that, guys. <laughs> that's why, girls, if you've ever wondered, that's why a guy who you hardly know sometimes ends up asking you out. And you're thinking, why did he... Well, trust me, I know exactly why he did that. It wasn't because he saw those inner, inner uh, beauty qualifications. It's because he thought you were pretty. There's nothing wrong with that as long as the inside matches the outside. And again, that's for a, another time. Number four. The fourth C in our roadmap for righteous relationships is the cultivation principle. The cultivation principle. What do you mean by cultivation? Well, I mean this. Honor one another as spiritual siblings. Cultivate the relationships that you have with the opposite sex as those who you're going to spend eternity with. Your brothers and sisters in the Lord. The place where many get into trouble in relationships is what I call the all or nothing category. By that I mean that there's a romance that started without any knowledge of the person's heart. You kind of go from zero to very fast, very fast. You've seen these relationships, haven't you? Two people who don't know each other very well, a month into a relationship, uh, they're snuggling everywhere that you can find them. And you think, how do they not know each other to get from there to there? Well, there's a danger in that. They haven't cultivated the right things. The cultivation principle is that you're primarily concerned in the relationships with the opposite sex about their growth as your brother or sister in Christ. Because you know what? After marriage is gone and dissolved and done away with, Jesus was very clear that there is no marriage in heaven. Right? He was answering some religious zealots who were pressing him on that. He said, hey, there's no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. We're all brothers and sisters in the Lord then. That's how we're going to spend eternity, and that ought to be the basis before we look romantically at each other. Then if there's a breakup, when you go from very fa- zero to very fast, very fast... There's a breakup, then you go back fast to nothing. I'm always interested to see how couples who break up maintain their friendship, especially in the church. You can tell a whole lot about the relationship by how people respond to each other after they've broken up. I told you, my wife dated someone before we were uh, married. and That would make sense. Um, And uh, this guy kept her in... Purity and holiness, had a great relationship with her. And he, he is one of mine and Kim's dearest friends today. And I've told him on more than one occasion, thank you for taking care of my wife. 
He didn't know it was going to be my wife. But he took care of her. He was honoring her as a sister. He was even honoring her as my bride, and he didn't even know me then. Remember, you could be dating someone else's mate. So treat them like that until they're yours. This kind of all or nothingness can, I think, lay the foundation for all sorts of evil, not the least of which is a pattern that begins to emerge that if a relationship is not working out, the solution is to break up and bail out. Just send them to the other side of the campus. Send them somewhere else. I'll not go where they're going anymore. Nothing could be farther from the best, though, when it comes to Christians who are pursuing each other. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that you have to marry the first person you date. There may be breakups. Some breakups are very good. I praise God for Kim breaking up with that other guy. That was a good breakup. (laughs) What I do mean, though, is that Christians share a relationship that transcends the arena of romance. It's bigger than that. And that relationship is that of being spiritual siblings to each other. And if you want to cultivate the right kind of relationships, you have to understand this. Well, how do you do that? First of all, this. Understand your relation in relationships. Understand your relation in relationships. By that I mean understand how you're related. If it's an unbeliever, guess how you're related? You're not. They're an enemy of God. They're a walking spiritual corpse. If they're a believer and you're a believer, you're related to this person. Spiritually, to every other believer in the world, other believer in the world, you're related. You're their brother or their sister, respectively. And just as parents set the rules and standards for their children to interact, God has set the rules and standards for His children to abide by. And by the way, let me remind you that your brother-sister relationship will far outlive and outlast your romance relationship, even if it enters into marriage. Turn to John chapter 13 for a moment. I want you to see something. John 13. This was heavily on the mind of our Lord as He was ending His earthly ministry. He's about to die, be crucified. He's about to uh, begin the ministry that's going to kick off the church. And you would expect him to be talking about some of that during his final moments on the planet. But you know what he's talking about? Look at John 13, verse 34. I find this very interesting. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That, students, is the kickoff of a series of over 40 one another's in the rest of the New Testament. And the one another's are how we're to relate. That's how we cultivate the siblingship that we have in Christ. Brothers with brothers, brothers with sisters, sisters with sisters, sisters with brothers. Look over at John 15. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Look at verse 17. This commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now, I make that point to say that loving one another is critical in Jesus' mind. It doesn't say anything there about a gender, does it? Believers are to love agape, have an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. They're to love one another above all else. They're to love. Now, the phrase one another is a favor of the Holy Spirit, as I said, in the familial relationships that believers share. Almost 40 commands in the New Testament are about believers relating to one another. 
For example, we're told to honor one another, to be of the same mind toward one another, to accept one another, to admonish one another, to greet one another, to serve one another, to bear one another's burdens, to bear with one another, to submit to one another and to encourage one another. But there's one of these one another's that I think transcends them all and kind of becomes the umbrella, umbrella under which all of the rest of them fall. And to find that, I want you to see that. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. Romans 12 is really the beginning of the last four chapters of Romans where Paul starts winding up his argument. And right in the heart of it, there's a powerful passage beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, and just flushes through. Maybe someday we can take the time just to study Romans 12. I'd love that. Romans 12:10 says this. And here it is. Be devoted to one another in Philadelphian love. Brotherly love. The word brotherly there captures the essence of our relationship with each other, including the opposite sex. The word, as I said, is Philadelphia, which refers to the love that should exist between brothers and sisters within the family. You're to have spiritual familial love that of a family with one another. You can go on. There's a whole list of one another's after that. Honoring one another and rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulations, devoted to prayer, continuing the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, blessing those who persecute, persecute you, blessing and curse not, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, be of the same mind toward, here it is, one another. What kind of same mind is that? Brotherly love. It's having a spiritual, familial love. Now let me say something briefly about biblical siblingship. I've said in the past that 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 provide a great foundation for biblical siblingship, and I believe that, but let me qualify it. 1 Timothy 5 is about brothers and sisters appealing to each other as spiritual brothers and sisters when they are confronting sin. Primarily it's talking to Timothy as the pastor of of the church at Ephesus on how he's to appeal to the opposite sex and to older men and, and, and women with regards to rebuking. I don't think that undermines the point. I think it highlights it. In Romans 4.16, for example, Paul teaches us that Abraham is the spiritual father of all believers. According to Hebrews 2, verse 11, 12, and 17, Jesus is said to be our older brother. All believers then are said to be joint heirs to the same birthright, Romans 8, 17, Galatians 3, 29, 1 Peter 3, 7, all talk about us being joint co-heirs as brothers and sisters underneath God our Father. Simply put then, there are both theological and exegetical grounds for viewing our other believers as spiritual siblings, which points us back to Romans twelve ten. Be devoted. Be devoted. Take pains to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. What does that mean Practically. First of all, physically, it means that you're treating each other as spiritual siblings. You say, well, wait a minute. What about when you get married? Are you still, yeah, you're still a sibling. But there are different rules that govern marriage. There are no rules, by the way, that specifically govern premarital, physical um, uh, interaction between people who are moving toward marriage. Closest you get is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which says to be holy and to be honorable. There's no specific. This is the, how far can I go? Well, well, we're going to come back to that next week. But physically, I would say this. Let me give you some uh, 
some insight from the scriptures and even my own insight and experience. It's my conviction that unless you are moving toward marriage, I didn't say engaged, unless you're moving toward marriage, you ought not have any romantic, physical involvement with any one of the opposite sex. It doesn't make sense. Why are you going to hold hands? Why are you going to snuggle and kiss and do other things if you're not intending to get married? Listen, every single desire you have in a relationship, every single want and longing and loneliness to be solved, every one of those can be solved by a relationship with someone of the same sex except for intimacy and intercourse. And that's reserved. The whole physical element is reserved for people in marriage. And you ought not be entertaining anything like that unless you're moving toward marriage. The Bible has a word for that. You know what it is? Defraud. You know why? Defraud means you're making someone think something. You're giving them a promise with nonverbal communication and sometimes even verbal communication that you're not going to fulfill. That's defraud. So people give me a hard time all the time when they say, well, Rick, do you think people should uh, hold hands and put their arm around and kiss? I say, not unless they're talking about marriage. And they say, well, why? I say, no, no, you tell me. Why are you going to do that? Why are you going to enter into that kind of physical interaction if not to fan the flames for marriage? Only one answer does. And you know what it is? Lust. Because I want to. We'll have a lot more to say about that next week, by the way. Also, practically, biblical siblingship means you spend time with believers of the opposite sex. Spend some time with people. And I've said so many times, don't assume there's anything going on until someone communicates there's something going on. Spend time in groups. I love to hear of those of you who are going out on the weekends, groups of guys and groups of girls, spending a lot of time together, getting to know one another. As spiritual siblings, you're going to spend the rest of eternity with each other. Might as well get a head start on knowing each other now having a godly, genuine care for him or her. Let me give you another point under cultivation. And that's be a priest before you're a pursuer. Be a priest before you're a pursuer. In other words, approach the relationship with the opposite sex spiritually before romantically. First Peter 2 tells us that we're all called to be priests. Now, what did a priest do in the Old Testament economy? A priest was a man who stood in between God and man and in between man and God. In other words, the interaction that this priest had with the people was to direct their thoughts and heart toward God. In 1 Peter 2, Peter tells us we're all priests. And where should that show up most? Wow, it should show up in our biblical siblingship, shouldn't it? So that our rubbing against each other in the, uh, um, the daily activities that we have of Uh, going to school and going to work, all that interaction that we have together ought to push each other back toward Christ. Praying for each other, interceding for each other, studying for each other, encouraging each other. It's that image of a priest taking the hand of God and reaching out and building relationships with the hands of his people and then the priest is to bring those two together and the joy of the priest is to let go and there's a clear bond there. Imagine if both partners in a romantic relationship were both working for that purpose. How wonderful their spiritual life would be and what a foundation for romance that would provide. 
You're called as a Christian to represent Christ to each other in relationships, to pray for each other, encourage each other, present the excellencies of God to each other. Let me warn you, watch for the person who talks more about God than themselves. Attach yourself to that kind of person. Find them. Be attracted to the person who talks more about what they've learned about God than what they want you to learn about themselves. Well, fifthly, just for today, there's a fifth principle on the roadmap to a righteous relationship, and that's the chivalry principle. The contentment principle, conversion principle, character principle, cultivation principle, and the chivalry principle. And by that I mean this. Understand relational roles. Understand relational roles. There are different roles God has given in the context of a man and woman, especially in marriage. Let me address you first, men. What does that mean for you? Men, you ought to lead with grace. You should be leaders. And you should be leaders who lead with grace. God has called men to lead. Ephesians 5 documents this very carefully and very clearly. The man is called in that chapter the kephale. That means the head. He's the one that, that the woman is, is to follow. That's not male chauvinism in that century or this century. That's the way that God designed the order of things to run and work. Somebody has to be in charge. If everyone is in charge, then no one is in charge. And there's a word for that. Anarchy. But his leadership is to be gracious. What do you mean? It's to be loving. What kind of love? A love that emulates the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. It's not dominating. It's not overbearing. It's not a master-slave relationship or a general-private relationship. It's a gracious leadership. And you know what I found? A lot of people fight that. I'm going to show you a situation where someone's fighting that right now. A lot of people fight that in our culture. I don't find very many godly women fighting that concept. Most of the women who are pursuing Christ with all their might that I know say, Lord, give me a man I can follow who's following you. Men should lead with grace. And again, we covered that in a much fuller fashion back several weeks ago. What about you women? You should follow with wisdom. Women should follow with wisdom. Understand their relational roles. Biblical submission is clearly taught. But only to men in church leadership and only to men who are your husbands. And I make that point lest you get in a dating relationship, girls, and the guy wants you to do things because you're supposed to submit to him that confuse your convictions and your conscience. The Bible doesn't describe that. Ladies, be wise with whom you're following. That doesn't mean there's not a process when you're getting to know someone and moving toward marriage that you're letting him lead and you're letting him make those calls. <coughs> Excuse me. And you're watching how he's doing that. You should be doing that. And guys, you should be absolute role models in leadership. You ought to be doing it around this gym. I, I don't think a woman ought to ever open a door in our gymnasium. She ought never open a door getting into a car if you're around. The only exception to that, as Matt Waymire and I were talking about the other day, is when you have multiple kids and it's just, let's just get them in, honey. You get one door, I'll get the other. You grab one kid, I'll get the other. And still, wherever possible, I love to do that. I love opening the door for my mom. There should be a chivalry about it, man. We should take care of women as the weaker vessel. 
And they're weaker. Why? Because they're called into a submission relationship with us. Learn to lead and learn to follow biblically. And again, we covered that more fully a few weeks back. November 10th, this past week, I want to read you a news article that I came across that just grieves me. I grew up Southern Baptist. My first 25 years and nine months, I was a Southern Baptist. El Paso, Texas, Texas AP. Quote, Texas Southern Baptist Tuesday, this last Tuesday, repudiated the denomination's call for women to, quote, graciously submit to their husbands, end quote. The Baptist General Convention of Texas is the largest state organization, 2.7 million members. Within the nation's 15.7 million member Southern Baptist Convention, But the state organization is more moderate than the national one. It's another way of saying liberal. It's the first state to affiliate, first state affiliate rather, of the Southern Baptist Convention to reject the uh, submit graciously stance of a woman to a man. Quote, The Bible doesn't teach that the husband is the general and the wife is a private. But yet that's how it gets interpreted, says the Reverend Charles Wade, the executive director of the Texas group. All but a couple dozen of the 2,200 delegates to the Texas group's annual meeting meeting voted in favor of affirming the Baptist faith and message statement of 1963 without without an amendment added in 1998. The amendment added in 1998 was that women should graciously submit to their husbands. And they were saying we reject that. The amendment marked the first change in the statement of his beliefs by the Southern Baptists in 35 years. It defines marriage exclusively in heterosexual terms and says that husbands and wives, while equal before God, share different roles. This is what the statement says, and I quote, A wife is to submit graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. End quote. That sounds like right out of Ephesians 5, doesn't it? It's a great statement. During a brief debate on a proposal, only two representatives spoke in favor of following the national group's lead. Paul Taylor, representing a church in Morrisville, uh, uh, said he believed the amendment speaks to the family. However, the Reverend Clyde Glasner, the newly elected president of the Texas organization, and Wade had urged Texans to ignore this statement. Quote, There's a partnership in Christian marriage, Wade said before the debate. We're trying to say that in our day, any attempt to put women in their place or somehow limit the contribution that women might have in the church goes against the whole spirit of Christ. End quote. Article goes on. Leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention denounced the decision and noted that submit graciously in the amendment had passed with overwhelming support last year, two years ago. They said it was little more than a paraphrase of the Apostle Paul's teaching. That's true. I love this. Robert, excuse me, R. Albert Moeller, Al Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, rather, in Louisville, Kentucky, said this. The vote in Texas is an intentional rejection of a clear teaching of the Bible. End quote. Students, this alarms me. 
This is my heritage. It may not mean a lot to you, but it means a whole lot to me. To see that the, the, the convention that my church was associated in is beginning to splinter, and people are beginning to say, the Bible says that, but it doesn't really mean it. And the question before all of us today is, what does the Bible say, what does it mean, and what am I going to do about it? Students, it comes down to your issue with God. God has no, nor had He ever, any speech impediment. He has no trouble saying exactly what He means, and it's not for us to come around 2,000 years later and reinterpret the whole thing. Women and men's roles are subject to the order of creation, not culture. We have to continually battle against the onslaught of liberalism and of reinterpreting against the Word of God. And the best way to simply to do this is to simply submit to what the Bible says. So where are you? Would you bow for a second? If the band could come back up, that'd be great.